Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Today's show comes from our first show of our 10th season. We had on Minnesota's Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith. Smith talked about a lot of issues, including what the heck is a lieutenant governor and what do they do. She also talked about some of her past roles, including her time as chief of staff for former Minneapolis Mayor R.T. Rybeck and when she was chief of staff for current Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton. She also chatted about what it means to be a woman in politics, the directions of the political parties in the state, and several of the current projects that the governor's office is working on. For this season of our show, we are fortunate enough to feature sponsors. If you're interested in supporting us, drop us an email to tane at t2p2.net. This activity is also made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I hope you enjoy the show. Oh, funny. That was a, that was a lot of work for a joke that... <laughs> How many were new? Right. Yeah. Um, so long walk. All right, tenth season, baby. All right, here we go. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you for inviting me. I uh, I'm absolutely delighted. Uh, yes, absolutely. And and you get the adjustable one, so uh, Good. perfect. So uh, I I often start shows by asking folks uh, a very sort of general sort of what uh, what do you do in this case I I think I have an idea of what the lieutenant governor does so I assume you get up every morning you call the governor and you say how are you feeling <laughs> and then uh, and then you go on with your day is that accurate it's you know one way or the other so today is Monday right so um, I got up and I went over to the residence and met with the governor and staff and uh, the governor had been at a prior meeting. And he came in, he was looking a little bit, um, you know, like it wasn't the best morning in the world. And we were like, well, what happened? What was going on? And he said, well, I was just at an event. This is a true story. I was just at an event where I was introduced as Governor Daytona. <laughs> Not just once, but twice. First they introduced him as Governor Daytona, and then they said, thank you, Governor Daytona, for being with us today. In Minnesota? In Minnesota, is that's it? right. Wow. Yeah. But, oh, know. man, those, that Elks so, Clubber. I don't yeah. know what it was. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I, I'm very curious. Your your story is fascinating because you, as I mentioned in the intro, you worked as uh, chief of staff for Mayor R.T. Ryback and then chief of staff for Governor Dayton, and uh, and now you're lieutenant governor. And I feel like there's probably some overlap in some ways between those jobs, but one is very uh, sort of behind the scenes and one is much more out front. And so I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what that change was like to all of a sudden now be the person on the ballot and the name as opposed to to the chief of staff role. Yeah. Well, first of all, when you're running for lieutenant governor with, you know, my really, really good friend, Mark Dayton, and my colleague from the last, you know, four years, last, it was at that point, it was three years. I mean, there was just a huge amount of comfort knowing that I was on a team. So I think it's very different in that regard. But I mean, it was, it was, um, it was great. It was very humbling, very interesting. When I was chief of staff, I used to spend much of the day um, in the office. I didn't mm. do a lot of traveling. And so when I was a candidate and now as lieutenant governor, I get to go all over the place and see all sorts of things. So I love that part of it, being able to get out and, and see what's happening in the state. And uh, it feels, sometimes I think it feels like I do less 
I'm, I do less like working and more talking. You huh. know? <laughs> how, how politician. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so you have been traveling a lot though lately. Yes. yes. So, uh, yes. can you tell a little bit? I actually, I have a whole card here, but I mean, you probably know where you've been better than I have. So, uh, you've, you've done, I can't even count how many stops you've done over the last, just, uh, this spring. Uh, yeah. And is it all, uh, you've done things, uh, stops around transportation, uh, broadband infrastructure, a jobs bill. So uh, I guess, what what are these events, I, you know, you go out and you meet with local folks and mm -hmm. uh, is it to just try and get the conversation started or are you trying to yeah. convince a particular person or just remind people that we have lieutenant governor? And <laughs> <laughs> well, um the main thing that people will say when I go out and talk to people is, you know, you really have gotten around a lot, which I think is a nice thing to I say. I was about I'm not to entirely say, like, I sure. go both ways on right, that. Right, I know, and I'm not entirely sure, but um, <laughs> I, um, you know, usually what I do is I get, I love to go and visit um, towns, visit businesses, yeah. understand what makes them tick, how the economy works in that community. Um, I mean, just the other day, okay, so a couple of days ago, I was on a trip where I went to um, Winona, where we went to Winona State University, mm -hmm. and we looked at the, yay, Winona State, WSU, right? Um, I wear, we had to, um, uh, Representative Pulowski insisted that I wear the purple sweatshirt for the, um, for the dialogue that we were doing. So we had the college president and people from the you know, faculty members, and we were talking about the need to make investments in the teacher training programs that they have there. And then we went to um, um, we went to Denison, Minnesota, where we were drawing attention to the need for improvements in wastewater infrastructure. That's when I went down into the sewer. Yes, I saw yeah. this photo op where you uh, you were crawling into like the hatch from Lost yeah, or something. I know, uh, I know it. That's right. There was like this. All you could see was this um, kind of big circle, and then all of the microphones and cameras going. What is she doing down there? Um, I but, guess, I mean, the, one of the questions, <laughs> all these events, uh, to, as you said, like learn about these different things and whatnot, I think, uh, what happens next, I guess, is the question people right. would ask. Like, does that, does the well, stuff that you learn take that, back or? One, it just gives me um, much better understanding and, and it gives me stories that I can then tell back at the Capitol um, about what's, what, why it is that what we're working on in the Capitol really matters to people and to communities. And then it also brings um, public attention to the, uh, the work that we're doing. So in Winona, uh, there were some really good stories written about how important this project was. And hopefully the legislators in that district and surrounding areas who, uh, who aren't supportive will read that and say, oh, I really ought to be able to figure out how to support the governor's bonding bill because um, it looks like it's really popular in this community. Does that so, work? I, I mean, I don't know how to ask that, like, in a more, in a, just, I'm just sure. curious. Legislators, legislators pay attention to what their constituents want. And so helping to bring attention to what matters and what is important to people definitely helps. So this actually leads to a, a different part of the conversation I wanted to ask about. So uh, I heard you, you were, uh, you spoke at uh, St. John St. Ben's recently, I think, mm -hmm. in that, that, and you talked, I think, very well uh, about sort of greater Minnesota and, and uh, the connection to greater Minnesota. There's been a lot of people have pointed out since the last election, right, that we, we have this very bifurcated uh, 
electoral map now where it seems like the DFL is very like cities focused and then uh, Republicans are almost uh, entirely control sort of uh, uh, they have a lot of if not all the districts in greater Minnesota and so I'm wondering with part of that I mean what's the disconnect there I mean with you going out there what is it that the the DFL uh, and needs to know or say or do differently in order to rebuild some of those relationships well, I think that the DFL does well, it does does very well in the core cities, does well in the suburbs, and then we do very well in the regional centers around the state. So Mankato, um, you know, Wilmer is sort of a swing district, um, Bemidji, the, you know, um, Moorhead, yeah. um, Duluth, we are strong in those places. And, um, you know, I think that this, this idea that um, that there's this big divide between greater Minnesota and the rest of the state I mean, in the metro area is a little bit overstated. I think it sort of simplifies a state that is really complex and diverse with lots of different, um, lots of different um, things happening that people aren't really aware of. I mean, who, who would know that in um, Worthington, Minnesota, for example, um, there's not only is it uh, does that you'd think oh greater Minnesota it's mostly white. Well, actually, in the school district, there's it's a very very diverse school district. Um, so. Sometimes these simplistic differences. I'm not calling calling you simplistic. No, no, no. Um, That's calling you simplistic. I've been called worse, Uh, but uh, so have I. uh, Yeah. So I. I, (laughs) Cheers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. uh, So. I, I am curious. So I, I think that that's right. It is much more complicated than that. And yet, we also hear a lot of uh, at least rhetoric around. Oh well, we need to do more uh, with some of the jobs bills or the bonding bills mm-hmm. or uh, I think uh, yeah. broadband is something. Well, broadband should, is a great example. Yeah. So of that. I mean, yeah. is that part of that uh, sort of you know trying to? And not just the DFL, I think that Republicans would say, too, that, you know, we want to uh, mm-hmm. be connected there. So I'm trying to sort of ferret out, I guess, what is the uh, – what's what's that relationship like, and, and what can we expect in this session that's going forward when we're talking about greater Minnesota mm-hmm. and more? Well, I hope we can expect that we get something really good done on broadband. You know, the people who have broadband think that um, – often say, oh, well, you know, we – it's good that I have it, but everybody, you know, we have to just let the market take its place and, you know, figure out how yeah. to. But it's sort of like rural electrification was in the, you know, the 20s and 30s, where there, you know, the the market just wasn't working to get broadband out to that last to get electricity out to that yeah. last mile, and so that's what we're trying to do with a good public-private partnership. So and so, uh, Governor Dayton, and and you have in the. In the bill that uh, he proposed, a hundred million, I believe, for mm-hmm. uh, rural broadband. I yeah. mean, uh, the only piece of that that I, uh, well, I've heard pushback on both sides. But one of the pushbacks is that that's not enough. That we need closer yeah. to like a billion uh, dollars right. to do the entire state. So I don't. Uh, why not? Why not do a billion? Well, maybe you should come over and try to persuade everybody about a billion. We might see. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, if, I, no, but it's yeah. it's true. You know the the. The governor's broadband task force says that they think that the total number of inve- the total dollar amount of public and private m- investment it could be as much as three billion dollars over the next twenty years to try to get it all done. Wow! So, um, well, you I, take it a bit at a time. As and, you know, last year we got ten million. So, maybe. I mean, as a negotiation tactic, though, why not start like astronomically high, like you know, a hundred billion, and then <laughs> and then Republicans will be like, oh, thank God we got it down to three billion, like. Uh, <laughs> I'm serious. I think you should come and help us negotiate. Well, 
Okay. Uh, so I'm hired. I'll see everyone next year. Uh, no, I I'll, uh, I have a, I actually wanted to ask. I, I know you probably get asked a lot about um, you know being a, a female lieutenant governor. I don't know if people know this. I did not know until uh, we were researching for this show that Minnesota has had female lieutenant governors consistently since what like 1986 or seven, yeah, probably. something like that. Right. Um, and yet in that whole time, we've never had. Uh, a, a female governor. We've never had a female governor, period. And so I know you get asked a lot, oh, should there be a female governor? I'm just curious about that. Why is it that we have almost said, like, lieutenant governors are supposed to be female and and, uh, and governors are supposed to be male? I, I'm just curious if you've thought at all about why that plays out that way. You know, it's never even dawned on me. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I like to break new ground. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Walter Mondale asked Geraldine Ferraro to be his vice presidential running mate in 1984, first woman to be in that role, and um, yet we've still never elected a woman vice president. We've never elected a woman president, um, nor a woman governor of Minnesota, and in fact, um, if you look at it, uh, the number of women CEOs in the private sector is only, I think, it's maybe 15%. So women have some, uh, you know, there's a, the idea that people have of electing a woman to an executive office is something that we have to, uh, kind of a frontier that we're still working on. And so what, we'll talk about that, I guess, a little. When you say we have to work on it a little, uh, what do, what <laughs> do we need to do? Maybe we have to, to work do? on it in the ballot box, uh, I In the think, ballot yeah. box, yeah. <laughs> it's an easy, yeah, uh, good. So, uh, I mean, uh, so I think that there's probably two sides to it. I mean, there's one. But we also, I'm trying to think, uh, we haven't had a, a female, like, a candidate who's actually made it all the way through the primaries for governor yeah, on one side true. or the other either. So yeah. um, is there also some element of it in terms of um, that we, as uh, the parties need to push harder towards this, not just sort of the, the general electorate. Um, I don't know. Well, I think one of the issues is the, there's been actually a lot, fair amount of research on this, and one of the things that women candidates have to really work on is um, not, to put it on the, not to put it on the women candidates, but women candidates have to really work on demonstrating that they have the credentials, that they've got the stature to be in that executive role. And um, and a part of that is that they need to then have had the experience to be able to make that be real and make that be mm -hmm. true. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's way past time. I mean, it's way past time. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it seems like then the, the appropriate question is like, so uh, if you were going to announce that you're running for governor, <laughs> like doing it on an improv show would get... Uh, <laughs> would get headlines. Uh, that would be a first. There could be some massive tweeting happening. Yeah. That would be really good. <laughs> so transportation. Um, so transport, uh, I am actually very interested in transportation. Uh, it's one of the, we'll come back to it. Uh, it's one of the, it's one of the things that uh, we have talked about, and I know you've done a lot of events recently uh, around transportation. So uh, I guess I, if we were just doing this as a make the pitch, what is the pitch that we need more uh, in investment in transportation, and what is that transportation we need? Yeah. 
Well, the pitch is that Minnesota needs a 21st century transportation system that includes roads and bridges and transit. And we have not invested in transportation like we, like many states have. In fact, many states led by Republican legislators and Republican governors have raised the taxes to invest in transportation, and that's why they are ahead of us. Utah um, is a great example Utah's ahead of us? Utah is ahead of us oh, on no. transit, and yeah, that's right. Um, and Utah, Tennessee... Um, Iowa, I was just reading today a quote from Governor Branstad, Republican governor of Iowa, who was bragging about how well we came together in a bipartisan way to make investments in transportation. But the bottom line is we know that we need to do this. Um, there's even not even really disagreement in the legislature about whether we need to do this. And if we don't do it this year, then the only thing that is going to change is that it's going to cost more money next year. And so... So the, yeah, you're right. There, there's no, uh, of course, there, there's no disagreement that something needs to be done. But right, obviously, the the debate is about a uh, what exactly to do and and b uh, and how to do it. And so I, we mm -hmm. could take each of those at a time. So as far as what to do, you said you know roads, bridges, and and transportation are these. Uh, I don't know, in the bill that you and the governor have talked about and the projects you've looked at, is it a lot of uh, redoing things that are already there and trying to mm -hmm. bring those up to code, or is it new things? Well, so it's both. The, if you just take roads and bridges, 40% um, of our bridges are 40 years old or, or older. 50% of our roads are 50 years old are, or older. That's hard to say. Um, <laughs> And um, there's a significant, I think it's like 40% of all of our uh, road infrastructure is going to reach the end of its useful life in the next several years. And so a big chunk of what we need to do is to maintain the infrastructure that we have. You know, we all learned you, got, if you, you, know, you need to take care of what you own, and that's what we need to do. But in addition, we need to make some strategic expansions. And everybody can, you know, knows of a... Of a um, a bottleneck in the metro area that needs to be fixed. I mean, it's a big problem in greater Minnesota. A lot Minnesota. of people who drove to this show today right, went yeah, through that right, bottleneck. Right, you went through yeah. the bottleneck, exactly. But then there's transit, and transit has to work hand-in-hand -hand with uh, roads and bridges, not only in the metro area, but also in greater Minnesota. There's a lot of people who rely on transit in, the, in, the, in greater Minnesota. I, I, the transit is one of the things that I find so fascinating, and I don't have any, I'm, I'm just honestly curious about this, uh, because I was doing some research recently on uh, the plenty years and you know he uh you know he was governor when we started work on the green line and when we finished uh the hiawatha line and and some of these kinds of things and yet now it seems like uh transit and especially something like rail has become this very like deep partisan divide and i'm wondering if you have any sense of why that happened well you know there are um there are some the the, the speaker of the house for example says that he is strongly anti-rail but a lot of the uh, local chambers of commerce, which you'd think tend to be more Republican, um, are very supportive of transit investment. And so I actually think that the, um, some of the Republicans in the House are a little bit behind the curve. I don't think they are as in tune with what people are looking for as, as they think they are. Okay. I, um, uh, so, oh, we did the first part. Uh, I'm trying to remember where I am. Uh, so <laughs> we did the first part as far as uh, what we need to do. So then how do we do it? And I think that this is the other big debate. So yeah. uh, what's, what's the pitch for how we do a, a transportation bill? Well, we think that on for transit, what we ought to do is to um, um, raise the sales tax in the metro area. It's, you know, 
especially with, with um, gas taxes being as low as they are. So we'd, we'd like raise the set sales tax in the metro area. Um, and then when it comes to how, and that would allow us to pay for um, transit and expansion of transit as well as uh, operating costs. If Adam Dunnick were here, he could um, tell you all the details of that. It's funny, when he was here, I asked him all about being a female lieutenant governor, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's only fair. Um. <laughs> Um, but then when it comes to roads and bridges, you know, I think there's a, we, I think there is, um, we can use some of the dollars that we have. We have some dollars that yeah. are currently go into the general fund that we could dedicate to transportation, roads and bridges, but it's not enough. And yeah. so we think that what we ought to do is to find some um, new revenue. You know, a county commissioner in Blue Earth County down by Mankato said to me a couple of weeks ago, it's a cup of coffee a week. Can't we all afford a cup of coffee a week? In order, that's the dollar amount that people would be paying more right. um, if we, uh, in order to fix our roads and bridges, and I think that's pretty practical. And so uh, I do have to ask this one other uh, thing. You mentioned we talked a little bit before, uh, as far as infrastructure, you climbed down in this uh, sewer pipe. I mean, in reading your bio, <laughs> uh, you worked on a pipeline uh, once upon a time. I, yeah. And so, what is that? Were you lay Were you laying pipe out in the, like the <laughs> the Alaskan tundra? Um, what was this project? Well, I went to um, high school and junior high school in Anchorage, Alaska, and so the summer before I went to college, so you came to Minnesota to like summer or yeah. what? Like <laughs> that was I came here later. Yeah, but. So the summer before I uh, went to college, I went up to Fairbanks, Alaska, and I joined a union, and I went to work at one of the construction camps at the beginning of the pipeline at Prudhoe Bay. So I worked in the kitchen, and uh, I uh, didn't work on the pipeline. I worked in the kitchen where I was uh, basically not allowed to touch anything hot or sharp. It was not a high-skill job that I oh. had. But, um, but the what, best what's left to do for cooking at that point? <laughs> mopping pl- is a big thing. Okay. Mopping is a big thing. And, uh, but the best, the best, I mean, it was an amazing experience. I worked 12 hours a day, 12, I mean, seven days a week for six weeks. And, t- and then I, you know, went, took a break and came back. But the best thing about it is that all summer long, so I was 18 and I, you know, was wearing like the checkered pants and the white shirt and the hat and my hair was short. And, um, the last Wait, what day. what hat? You know, like one of those little white paper hats that you wear all the time. Oh, oh, not like a not like a beret. No. Okay. No, I don't no. know why I had that image. Anyway, so uh, I, I know I don't know either, but we can talk about that in the yeah. second round. Okay. But um, so on my last day, I came down to the kitchen and I was wearing my civilian clothes, and some of the the guys that lived in, had been living in that camp. One of the guys saw me and he goes, "Holy shit, you're a girl." <laughs> How often do you get that when you're lieutenant governor and you show up places? <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, can we do a tremendous round of applause uh, for Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith? So, Okay. All right. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and I will run towards you with a microphone in a non-threatening way. I, ca- I promise I'll come back. This woman had, she was waving before I even got uh, off the stage. So, uh, yes. Other than you... Who would you say is a female person active in politics politics now in Minnesota who would be likely to be a good candidate for governor? <laughs> I don't know. That's, it seems like a trap, but I don't know. Uh, it's a trap. Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's see. There's Representative Aaron Murphy is a minority leader in the House and is a you know excellent leader and does a lot of work in education and um, 
uh, Lori Swanson is uh, the uh, Attorney General, and I think many people wonder whether she might want to run for governor or not. And on the Republican side, I would say... Oh, sorry. Sorry, we go. Thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> serendipitously, I forgot to use my microphone to answer those questions. Uh, <laughs> wow, she's good at this. <laughs> Wait, you were about to do the Republican side. Um, I'm not really sure. Okay. All right. So this gentleman made... Okay, yes, right here. So now we're going to have a new Senate... Uh, new uh, legislati legislative office buildings. So where are you going to be in the new legislative office buildings, and how are you going to decorate it to make it your own? <laughs> Again, these all feel like trips. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so right now our offices are in the Veterans Services Building, which is at the other end of the mall from the Capitol. And when the Capitol, the beautiful Minnesota Capitol, reopens in January of 2017, that's where our offices will be. And how will I make it my own? Well, let's see. I'm looking to my uh, staff. I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> like a little Aaron Schock, yeah. Uh, I know it, exactly. Okay, so uh, right here there's a question. Thank you so much for being here, Lieutenant Governor. Um, I know that you have a reputation for being really skilled at building consensus among people that might not initially have the same perspective as you, and that this led to you earning the nickname, if I'm correct, during your tenure as Mayor Ryback's Chief of Staff as the Velvet Hammer. So I'm curious to hear how, how does one Velvet Hammer, and what tips do you have for folks who want to disagree with people, build consensus, and do it nicely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Now you guys are going to Well, you know, the thing about being a velvet hammer is, um, I guess... <laughs> the thing about being a velvet hammer is that people decide that they want to do something that they didn't even really know they wanted to do, and they think it was all their idea. <laughs> And um, I think that the, uh, <laughs> the um, you know, the key, I mean, in, in all seriousness, the key thing is really trying to figure out how to listen to people and understand exactly what it is that they, are, they need, that they want, and, and to be, like, open to that idea as opposed to constantly trying to figure out how to position for, um, you know, winning, you know, winning and losing. And uh, I think that's the... I mean, that's really the core of it. One of the things that happens at the Capitol is that you end up always sort of jockeying for position. And I win, you lose, you lose, I win, or you win, I lose. And sometimes that is truly the case, but a lot of the times you can figure out a way to kind of maneuver through. And I think it's worth trying to find that out. So this is interesting. We, we've had a lot of folks um, on the show from the city of Minneapolis and a lot of folks from state government. And so you've uh, been in both roles. And I'm wondering, what's the same? What's different? Is one harder or one easier in terms of this question of building consensus or getting things done? Well, you know, at the city level, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, everybody, you know, the city of Minneapolis, everybody's a Democrat, so it should be really easy to build consensus because everybody should agree. But, of course, it's not like that at all. You know, all politics is personal in, at the end of the day. And um, and at the, at the state level, it's more sort of Republicans versus Democrats and that kind of party differential. But, um, 
you still have to really learn and try to figure out what is it that, that people want. And not, a lot of times, what people are, what people need to do to deliver for their district isn't a partisan thing. It is just something that is good for their district. Like the Education Village is good for the is good for Winona. It's not a Democratic idea or a Republican idea necessarily. So you have to kind of get past that, I think. Okay, so uh, there were some other hands. Uh, I said, oh, wow, okay. I'll come back down here. I'm going to make my way sort of up here on some of these steps. So this gentleman had his hand in the So I'm about to work at the uh, Mayo Clinic, and I know we've been talking about transportation, and you're a big part of the uh, Destination Medical Center. I was wondering how likely we are going to get a zip rail from mm -hmm. St. Paul to Rochester. Yeah. We should probably explain a little bit about what the destination medical. I'm sure everyone here already knows they keep up to date on their <laughs> Rochester Daily News. But uh, but if you want to say just a little bit, sure. and then the question about a zip line yeah. uh, that so will take us there. Wouldn't that be great? A zip line, right? Very good. Might be a little more affordable too, but we'll see. Um, so the Destination Medical Center project is a big partnership between Mayo Clinic and the city of Rochester and Olmsted County and the state to figure out how to build on the great strengths in Rochester led by Mayo Clinic to uh, just attract a lot of, make, really make Rochester America's city for health. And the, uh, the work is all about you know, creating jobs and attracting private investment and then using public investment in, on public things like roads and bridges and parks and um, to, to make that investment, make it all come together. And it's, we are, you know, it's going great. We're expecting that over 20 years we're going to create somewhere between 35 and 45,000 new jobs in Rochester with all of that opportunity and a big challenge too. So the question is about zip rail and how you can, is there a way of building high-speed rail between Rochester and the metro area, maybe to the um, MSP airport, for example. And the, the idea that's on the table is that that would be a privately funded and privately owned and operated um, rail line, which is what we see happening in other parts of the world, though we haven't had a privately funded um, rail line in um, the United States yet. And so we're, what's happening right now is that the private company is doing some analysis to try to figure out whether or not they can make, make it work and make, make the economics work. Um, and it's complicated because some people think it's a great idea and then some people who own land between Rochester and, uh, in fact, just the other day when I was driving around, you, like, you can see people with big signs in their yard saying uh, no, no zip rail. So, hmm. All right, uh, right here. I think it's a good idea, though. What's up with the gasoline tax? Uh, why can't it be adjusted for inflation? And what do other states do that might be smarter than what we're doing? Yeah. We have a smart crowd. All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I'll say that, you know, we proposed a, uh, a, a tax on gas that would be, um, was, a, was a wholesale tax, which would, would have adjusted as prices, as the prices of gas went up and down. And so we still think that that is an idea worth pursuing, but it doesn't appear to have any support in the House. Although it's interesting, when I talk to House members, Republican House members um, around the state, they'll often say things like, well, the Speaker doesn't agree with this, or my caucus doesn't agree with it. They will often not say, I don't agree with it. So um, it's kind of hard to know exactly what's, what's going on there. But the bottom line is that gas is um, right now, you know, little under $2 a gallon, I think. And the additional, you know, if, if you were to increase the gas tax, which is what the governors in uh, Utah have done and 
also in Iowa, it's about a cup of coffee a week for people. It seems to me to be a good way of doing it, but if that's not the path, then uh, there are other ways that we can um, also raise revenue. But you can't fix our roads and bridges um, and expand where you need to expand without some new revenue. Just won't work. I'm, I'm curious that like a sort of uh, going in part trying to tie this together with this velvet hammer thing. So you mentioned, you know, you hear <laughs> these, you hear sort of hints that maybe there are particular members of the house who uh, might be open to something like that. So what do you, uh, ha, do you, what do you do then? Do you like, do you invite them over for like a private coffee and you're like, hey, come on, like we can, we can do this thing, can't we? We're friends. Yeah, we uh, I, there'll be a There'll be a fruit basket in your district next year. <laughs> no, I would never do that because that's probably illegal. Yeah, so uh, very good. Uh, so, but I mean, uh, that was a trap. Uh, so, so, but I'm curious, like, how, when you actually do, you, what is that re personal I mean, I relationship part have, like? You know, I, the the governor and I and all and our staff and our commissioners um, have dozens and dozens and dozens of conversations to try to figure out where there might be common ground and where we can where we can come together. And then sometimes we hold transportation forums in their districts and let them hear from their uh, local communities, their mayors and their county commissioners and their chambers about how important it is to them, and that helps too. All right. Were there any other hands up there before I go back? Okay, so there was somebody over here. Yes, coming back over this. Hi. Hi. <laughs> When you were talking about transportation, I'm wondering where biking infrastructure maybe yeah. falls into that? Yeah. It's a really great question. It's really important because, you know, uh, biking is a major way for people to get back and forth to school and to their jobs. It's a commuting strategy. It's not just a way of getting great exercise on the weekends. And so um, it's very much a part of what our proposal is. We have um, dollars set aside for it, and it is um, really important. And also walking, just like making it, you know, figuring out safe routes to schools for kids and ways for them to be able to walk and, and having communities where you can walk more means that you don't have to use your car as much. And for a lot of people, that makes a big difference. It's, you know, other states like Colorado, for example, are using biking and transit as a major way of attracting people to want to live in their um, communities. So it's really important. So does that end up being part of like a, a bonding bill or something like that? Then? It's part of our overall transportation package. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I guess I don't know exactly how specific it gets. Like, does it, is it for particular, like a bike lane or uh, that might, or uh, <laughs> a... Are you getting ready to lobby me on a yeah, particular uh, route I, that I, is I important? Live, uh, no, I have, a, I have a bike lane. I, people can park on it on the weekends, which I don't understand. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. Um, so, but it, it, it was just general. No, our package will say, it, what it does is it it assigns, um, it, it makes proposals for specific dollar amounts for, for you know, biking, for trans, for transit, and for roads and bridges. And also remember, a lot of this doll, a lot of these dollars end up going to cities and counties and townships for them to um, mm -hmm. spend where they think it's best. Ninety percent of the roads and bridges in this state are owned and managed by local governments and not the state. So uh, we're, we're kind of at the end of our time, but there's a couple big issues I, I did want to get to before we go. So I know you've also worked a lot uh, recently on, on a jobs bill and an uh, economic, and particularly around uh, the governor's proposed some money for trying to address economic disparities that we have in the state. And so I'm wondering, uh, there's a lot of people here who say uh, that those disparities are sort of deep-seated and they're very real, but 
but is it something that like a state can actually address? Is it something that you know state government can do something to try and uh, rectify or fix? And so I guess uh, kind of going back to what I asked earlier, what's what's the pitch for the idea that the state government can do something about those inequities? Well, the first thing we can do as state government is to recognize that we are one of the largest employers in the state. We have 35,000 employees. And so our first job is to make sure that we are a fair and inclusive employer. That's extremely important. And we have, you know, we've made some real headway, but we've got a ways to go to make sure that, that that's the case. Um, then what the state does also a lot is to make investments in job training programs and um, uh, uh, dollars for students to make sure that they can maybe get some help with their student loan debt, which is a huge problem for all people, but it especially hard is, is hard hitting for um, students of color. And we have to just acknowledge in our state that our that that we will not be successful and people won't be successful if we can't figure out how to be more inclusive, how to make it, how to really open the door for everybody in this state and not just some people in this state. Uh uh, one other piece of that maybe then is uh, I'm curious the work on trying to make a preschool universal mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. And so uh, how does how does the role of education in the state's investment in education play into some of those things? You know, the, the secret to success is education and jobs. And preschool is a key part of that. We were, the governor and I were visiting a school in South St. Paul last week and there was a mom who had three children. And her first child, who is now eight, had been able to participate in the preschool program because her income was such that she qualified for um, she qualified for being able to get preschool with some with some help. Her second child, their family income had gone up a little bit, but they couldn't afford preschool, and she no longer qualified. So that child wasn't able to get preschool at all, and he was really struggling. She told about mm. how by the time he was you know in kindergarten, he was so far behind his brother. And then their third child, for you know, the circumstances of the family had changed again, and that child was able to qualify for preschool. Now that's like crazy. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And um, every one of those kids in her family and all of our families ought to be able to have the chance to have um, be able to go to high quality preschool. There's a part of this that uh, is so uh, frustrating in that I, I, you make a really good case for this, and then the you know the proposal, if I, I have it right, in the governor's budget isn't we don't get to universal pre-K yet. Uh, that it's only sort of part of the pie at this point, and so I, it's similar to what I, I asked early on broadband. Mm -hmm. I mean. Uh, it is crazy. If it is crazy, why not fight for the whole thing then as opposed to do sort of a yep. part piecemeal? Well, we are fighting for the whole thing. But you remember, you know, in the in the process of making and passing laws, uh, there is a budget year and the budget year is next year. And so what we're proposing is to try to get things going this year. And then we've got next year to make, a, you know, to, to make the proposal again in the full budget year. But nobody should think that because we're, you know, what we're trying to do this this year is kind of gin the, you know, kind of prime the pump a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but it's frustrating because, you know, the kids that are going to be four in uh, this this fall are only going to be four once. Okay. Uh, can we can we do sort of like a lightning round? We have like a couple minutes okay. left. All right. So, uh, so we'll do a few things here. So uh, most surprising thing uh, that has, that either has happened or you've learned since becoming lieutenant governor? Oh. Or about uh, the job, maybe. Um... I mean, I guess 
how nice people are. Oh, that's nice. That's a very uh, Minnesotan answer. That's uh, good. Uh, okay, that's a good one. Uh, so uh, this is harder. Uh, uh, favorite favorite county? Uh, oh. You can't say Hennepin uh. now. Um, favorite county? You know, I've only been an elected politician for about a year and a half, but I definitely have the experience not to answer that question. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh, here's what I know. You worked. Uh, you worked for both uh, former Mayor R.T. Ryback, who will be on our show later this season, and uh, Governor Mark Dayton. Uh, uh, who, who's the better boss? <laughs> I'm the better boss. Oh wow! Uh, that's a very good answer. I'm gonna. I'm gonna stop it there, ladies and gentlemen. A big round of applause, <laughs> Lieutenant Governor. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you're interested in coming to an upcoming show, you can find all those details at www.t2p2.net.